for our special guest interview this week. I'm delighted to have Joe Warren with us. Joe is an elite athlete, coach and scientist. He specialises in 800 metres and 1500 metres with five Irish caps to his name, reaching numerous national finals and having won four of these, including junior championships. He's a medalist at the European Cup in Estonia and also incredibly won the 80km race at Eco Trail Wicklow last year. Joe's day job is as a sports scientist where he lectures in Technological University Dublin and is also the Programme Director of the Masters in Performance Coaching at Satanta College. He has worked with DCO Athletics and GAA Academy teams. He was the High Performance SNC coach in DCU Sport and was also the Sports Science author for Irish Runner magazine for over six years. He has coached and currently coaches several international athletes, working as an advisor to many more. He is also recognised as one of the world's leading experts in the transition to minimalist footwear with respect to performance and injury as a result of his PhD research. Finally, he has been the keynote speaker at a number of international and national events in sports science. So we're very lucky indeed to welcome Joe Warren to Trail Running Ireland. Joe, I thought I would start the chat by bringing the listeners back to the 2006 800 metre national championships final in Santry and the two of us were in the race together and can you remember Joe where you finished that day? I can't actually Owen I have to admit it's uh, it's been a long time and I've as you are well aware I've done a lot of races particularly over 800 meters and so they, a lot of them have tended to blend together but I know that it probably wasn't that high um, I may or may not have scraped into a final but that may have been it about then. Yeah, no, you absolutely did, Joe. Well, I tell you, a young Joe Warren, I think, Joe, you were maybe 19 or so back in 2006. You finished in seventh in 155.3. And then I was just behind you, 0.3 of a second behind you okay. in eight. And I was around 25. So um, it, it's, it's a real pleasure, Joe, that 14 years later, here the two of us are on a trail running um, podcast in, yeah. in 2020. So uh, it, it was great yesterday when I was looking back and remembering time. And uh, it was a great race. And we were seventh and eight. We, we weren't in the bottom two. There was 10 runners that day. Um, but I remember there was some tough competition that day. Because I wasn't sure, actually. It was either that year or the following year was the last time I did not ever make a national final. And from because I, I won my first national final senior in 2008 indoor. And I think since then there was a 10 year un, um, uninterrupted block where I didn't finish outside the top six at a national championship. And that was wow. uninterrupted. So every single indoor and outdoor championship for about a 10 year period. Um, wow. Brilliant. Yeah. But that pretty, must have been, Joe, one of your, your first senior championships, was it? I believe it was, yeah. That was about the time I first started up into the senior ranks, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. But, well, listen, we'll come back to that final uh, maybe later on because there's a couple of interesting things that I want to touch on about that one too. Um, but, Joe, I thought the first question maybe today was, and maybe the first bit of conversation, could be around your journey from, as you said, being, being an 800-meter specialist and that incredible record of close to, what, 10 years of, of getting in the top six in track finals, to last year winning the Eco Trail Wicklow 80-kilometer race. So maybe could you bring us through your decision-making process to go from 800 meters to 80 kilometers and your journey along the way to, to winning 
um, that ultra race? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, it was always actually something that I'd always intended to do. I mean, I I grew up in the in the mountains of West Cork, running across the hills there. That's the main area that I had the avenue of of training was up on the up on the Oaten Mountains. So I've always had a love of that. Um, and you know, right the way through my track career, I always knew at some point I was going to move into doing some some trail ultras. Particularly, some of the stuff was inspiring me from New Zealand, um, and you know, some of the real famous trails out there. So so it's something I wanted to do. Um, and really, it comes sided with I had this kind of long span of competing at, at a, you know at a national level I wouldn't ever say I was a very good international athlete I had maybe five caps and and some other kind of good performances maybe internationally but but I never really broke into any major championships or anything um, and so so it got to a point really after probably a very consistent 12 to 15 years at the top end of in Ireland um, I decided to take a break and go traveling uh, and that was the first time I I you know taken that real active break I'd been very consistent up to that point the most time I'd ever had off was two weeks and so so, so I, I we, we went away for seven or eight weeks my uh, seven or eight months myself and Sandra and traveled around the world and and uh, and I decided before we left you know that this was the point now that when I came back I was never going to quit running this is the love first love of my life and it's given me more things in my life than I could ever have hoped for and so I yeah. intend to run as long as I can move my legs um, but I decided yeah. that when I came back I was going to try and have a more of a a balanced holistic view of what I was going to do. I was going to start trying some new things, um, explore, you know, find some, some new new outlets for, for this love of running that I had. And and I knew that one of them would be to move back onto the trails and, and do a bit. And so actually when I was out traveling, I, I, I didn't do too much for the first maybe four or five months. Um, but then as we moved towards Australia and then towards uh, New Zealand, I knew that some, obviously some of these trails in New Zealand that I'd heard about for years would be there and I got the idea in my head that I'd run the Milford track um, it's 67 kilometers and so about with about two months to go in the trip we and about six weeks out from New Zealand I decided that I'd go and run that so when we got to New Zealand I, I did a few training runs and, and went out and did it and I found it um, obviously incredible it's an incredible trail really really scenic you can see why it's up there as one of the top in the world um, and it was quite intimidating because I had to get dropped at the start of this trail on a boat at about five o'clock in the morning and I'd never ran anywhere close to that distance 30k was the most I'd ever ran before that and um, and so you know I was left in the middle of nowhere I had to bring a, a self um, GPS system because it was completely uninhabited the area um, and so I just set off in the darkness on this trail and I had the, the best experience of my life and it really confirmed that you know this this long distance trail running was something for me and the biggest thing I took from that actually is I found it incredibly easy you know this this I've been running my entire life I think I've developed a lot of physical resilience and also very good efficiency uh, and so that I was just able to tip along an easy Sunday run and, and really enjoy it so when I got back really I, I had a year where I tried to transition back into to kind of full-time training again but because of that break for the first time in my career the body was saying you know what I'm not quite ready for this and I had a couple of injuries for the first time in my career and and so it was kind of a year of up and down I put on a bit of weight I wasn't that fit and so that was the point I said right let's just um, focus on on something here and I, I entered the 80k so so interestingly actually the difference between now and then even you know I was hoping to run it this year the 80k um, unfortunately as you know it was cancelled yeah. but you know I, I would probably comfortably say I'm twice as fit as I was last year I mean I'm seven kilos lighter I ran a 5k around um, about six weeks before that 80k last year and I ran 1620 something and it was probably one of the worst 5ks I'd ever ran and yeah. I, I, I won a 5k a couple of weeks ago in 1509 and felt like I could go a lot quicker. So I'm, I'm a considerably fitter now. So it's a shame that it was cancelled this year. 
Sure. Um, and then say the, the actual preparation for the 80k race, Joe, um, how was your training leading up to that? Did you set aside maybe, I don't know, a, a 14, 15 week block to get ready for the 80k? Or was it just a more relaxed approach and you were just enjoying your training, just getting out on the hills? Or, or were you very focused? No, I mean, if anything, I know I've joked about this with some friends. I, you know, I'm, I'm five days a week, I'm an 800 meter runner. And then two days a week, I'm a, I'm a trail runner. So, yes. so really, the only change I made to my training was that during the week, I would try and get at least one or two of my easy run days out on the trails. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and then on the weekend, I'd build up a, a longer run. But actually going into that 80K, I think the sum total of my long run training on the trails was... I think I'd ran two marathons back to back. So I ran a 40K and a 43K, two weekends apart. And that was about the sum of the long running that I'd done in prep for that. And otherwise, my training is pretty standard. It's about 100K a week of uh, two yeah. to three two to three kind of quality sessions and, and, and maybe one or two double days. But nothing, you know, there, there wasn't a big, big change in the focus leading up to that with the exception that I kind of pushed out a few, few long runs. So I don't think in a traditional sense that I was fully prepared for that ultra. I remember actually in the early stage of the race, I was running with, with Keith who finished third and, and, and he said, you know, really, if you want to get, be ready for an 80K, you've got to have run at least a couple of 50s or 60Ks getting up for it. And I said, well, I actually haven't done anything near that. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. but but again, yeah. No, I just I remember talking to Pablo Villa, Joe, at the start of the podcast episode two, and he won the TDS in UTMB last year. But he was saying, yeah, a bit like what you said there. No way do you need to go anywhere near race distance in training especially for ultras because there's only so much kilometers the body can handle and you know so if he's preparing for an 80k ultra race just like what you said there he might do maybe two or three 40 40k races and that's it because if not you will just wear your body down and even i know from talking to a, an irish international athlete there a couple of weeks ago who did an fkt over i think maybe 120 kilometers she was saying that she had she has um, trouble sleeping for she actually had trouble sleeping for about three or four weeks after she did the 120k so it's such a demanding effort on your body the ultras that you really have to manage training and not be too ambitious and just be clever about it as well make sure you get the race day fit and healthy um yeah in terms of fueling joe and you know for, for an 800 meter race obviously you don't need to take anything but for an 80k race you do need to make sure that you have enough carbohydrates on board how did you how did you get on with that what was that experience like for you eating when you're running um, I just maybe quickly just for you, I answer that question to go back to what you just said. I think a big part of that preparation also is, uh, you know, un one of the big understated factors is running efficiency or running economy, you know. And yes. so the fact that I'm coming from a background of quite high end speed and a lot of quality work, three days a week of pretty high end speed work, um, I think that my ability to cruise along using a far lower energy cost than somebody else is a big factor in them ultras. So, so I yes. mean, the quality work, I think, is a, is a key part in that. Um, yes. the, 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 I'm sorry to cut in, Joe. I'm sure you're probably looking at your heart rate as well, were you? Um, your heart rate must have been probably very, very low as you were running on the, on the, in the ultra race compared to 5K or 10K. You must have been operating maybe at around, what, 130, 140? 
Uh, so I tend to try and not look at any metrics like that while I'm racing or while I'm out. I'll use them maybe for training or for monitoring occasionally. Um, but but I, I don't like the idea of trying to monitor them things as I'm running. I prefer to, to go off feel. Um, so what I would say is that the pace was certainly conversational. You know, I mean, it was, okay. it was very, very easy comfortable yeah. pace all the way yeah, yeah. okay okay um, and yeah. moving on moving on to the fueling um joe how, how did that go for you it, it was actually incredibly smooth um i i find it very easy to to eat and run i've never had an issue with that before um and so so the main thing for me was just to try and to get a bit of a bit of reading done you know uh, well that i'm a i'm a sports scientist so i wanted to go in somewhat prepared so i talked to a couple of nutritionists beforehand and, and also some exercise physiologists and and as i'm sure most trail runners already know but it's pretty clear that this event is all about nutrition you know the person who can take on the most calories and maintain that intake for as long as possible are very likely to be at the top of the field. So my strategy is to take on food every 40 minutes. And so I remember actually on the start line of the Eco Trail, I had a bag about twice the size of anybody else. And I was quite concerned about that. You know, I, these guys were carrying nothing. And I thought, have I got this wrong? You know, have I missed something here that, 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 that these guys know that I don't? Um, but one of the big things, I think, at the, in the splits of that race, and I think the sole reason why I won it is because I didn't slow down. In fact, if anything, I got quicker towards the latter stages of that race. And, and I definitely think by a country mile, I ate more during that race than anybody else. And my staple, I use this uh, all the time in any long runs or anything, is a, is a tin of baked beans, you know. And I had two of them on that. So I took a tin of baked beans on at two hours and at four hours during that race. And people laugh at that. They think it's crazy. But for me, it's just a great staple food in a tin, easy to eat, easy to swallow. Um, and so, I, I swear and by so it. Are baked beans, um, are they not protein or do they have a carbohydrate element as well? Yeah, there or is a lot. It's fat-based food. Well, there's a bit of everything in there, you know. It's, it's probably considered one of the more rounded meals that you can eat. And, and so... <laughs> The big thing, make sure that it's one of the, the branded ones like Heinz or that, that have got a lot of extra sugar in them. So then you've got, okay, you've yeah. got your fiber, you've got your sugar, you've got your protein, you've got, um, a, there's, there's good fluid in there as well. I mean, I'm, I've no doubt, Owen, that there's probably better things to eat. In fact, I was even considering in the next ultra, I'd probably try maybe baked bean, uh, uh, what they called um, rice pudding instead. And so maybe that might be better, you know. But I'm a big fan of a believer in that it should be whole foods at regular intervals you know okay. um, I'm, I don't want to get on them gels early on I think once you get on there you know as they say once you pop you can't stop I, yeah. I don't I just can't handle that idea it's a long period of time and, and to getting in some whole foods is really essential sure were you tempted Joe to experiment in any way with trying to fat adapt your body and to use fat as your main source it's been very popular over the last couple of years some people are in favor of it some people not but it sounds like you went down just a more traditional carbohydrate fuel based strategy yeah and, and the answer is absolutely not Owen I mean one of the things I teach is exercise physiology particularly in, in lab settings and and I know that one of the big limitations of, of fat adaptation or fat oxidation during exercise is fats are very slow to oxidize and so the issue is that once we are primarily using fat as the as the as the fuel for exercise we are very limited in the energy output that we can we can um, provide and so so I, I, I think if you're running exceptionally long endurance events you know two three four five 
five days or more, then there is an element of, of absolutely critical fat adaptation. But I really believe that if it's something below 100K and you want to maintain a power output or you know, an, an energy output that's, that's, that's competitive, you have to rely on carbohydrates. It's, just, it's suicide in my mind to try and rely on fats alone. Um, so, so, so carbohydrates are the aim of the game me at, at that intensity you know and there's okay. there's parts of that race on the flats that you're running seven minute miles which is not fast in any competitive sense in a road or a track race but you know on that distance that's a fairly high intensity you'd very you'd struggle to hold seven minute miles primarily using fats as your 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 fuel source uh, okay. and so yeah carbohydrates all the way sure i'm just there uh, bringing back to the moment joe when you cross the finish line you know you've been used to as we mentioned coming in in the top five top six in national championships picking up lots of wins over the years as well what was the feeling like to to win the 80k that day it, it was great because i had known that i was going to try and move up and do some ultras and i thought i thought it was going to be a difficult ride honestly i but it was going to, I was going to really suffer the first few years and that I was going to, you know, them, them wins were going to be frequent, uh, very hard to come by. And so to, to win the first one and to do it, you know, with all due respect to everyone in the race, I, I honestly felt very comfortable. I, I, I would say I won that quite easily. Now, I'm not saying that I would do it again. I think I've very much untested. I'm, I don't think I'm a, I'm a successful or, or a good trail runner by any means. But whatever happened on the day, whether it was my pacing or my nutrition or whatever, even just the way in which the race rolled out, I found it quite comfortable. Um, and so, so for me, I mean, I remember before the race, I joked to Sandra and said, what if I just won this? And she said, don't be so stupid. You know, she was worried about me. She said, just go out and try and finish it for a start, you know? Um, and so it was, it was, a, it was a huge surprise and I was absolutely delighted. You know, it's right up there with one of the top memories, particularly moving to a new sport and having no expectations and then realizing, well, actually maybe, maybe this is something I could be good at as well, you know? So, so yeah. it was great. It was fantastic. Ah, brilliant. And I suppose maybe that brings me on to my next question, Joe, where that was when 20, September 2019, and then maybe you might have been at a crossroads whether to actually continue to test yourself, maybe test yourself maybe in a, in a more competitive field or test yourself in an international ultra race. But this summer, I saw, well, only a couple of weeks ago, actually, I saw you making the 1500 meter national track final and you won the 5k race as you mentioned as well so uh, how did you make that decision joe and what were the um, driving factors between maybe continuing with your developing ultra running career or go back to your bread and butter and make another national track final yeah, I certainly don't think that it was that I switched from one to the other. I mean, my plan is in the future to try and balance both of them. I know that will be a tough ask, um, but I want to race. And so this will give me an opportunity to, to do more races. I had planned after that. I had a whole season lined up. I looked at the, the World Sky Running Series and picked out just the ultras on that. Um, but of course, everything was cancelled. And then this year as well, I had planned to run both the Eco Trail again. And also in two weeks time, I was going to run the Wicklow Way Ultra, the 127K. And just wow. the, yesterday that was cancelled. So... Yeah. It's just been an unlucky year. Um, so I think I would have still done some track anyway. That's my bread and butter, you know. I mean, in the meantime and, and right the way through 
even training for them. I'm very fortunate I can train with the Dublin Track Club. So shout out to Phelan Kelly and the guys. You know, I'm grateful to be able to to join them. And and we're, so I'm still training, as I said, like my day job is a track runner. And really, I see this kind of moonlighting as an ultra runner as well. And as I joke to the guys, it's a great excuse, Owen, you know, when I'm not quick enough on the track anymore because I'm old and slow compared to these young guys, I tell them, listen, I'm an ultra runner. And then when, yeah. I, when I go to the ultras and one day when I'm found wanting and I can't finish the distance or whatever it may be, I can say, look, I'm an 800 meter runner. And don't discount, Joe, as well, maybe the, the opportunity one day to, to test yourself out in a trial race, maybe to make the Irish long-distance running team. Um, they were cancelled in Lanzarote this year, but they should be on, hopefully, fingers crossed, next year in Lanzarote. And only yesterday, Joe, it was announced that the European Championships in 2022 will have three mountain races together on the same weekend, an up and down traditional course, a short vertical kilometre race as well, which might be in total maybe six kilometres, but mainly uphill on a sharp ascent. And then they'll have a ultra long distance one, maybe up to 60 kilometres in the island of La Palma in July 2022. So maybe that's something to, to stick under your eyes for you as well. Um, get yourself a, a green jersey maybe running in, in, in an ultra race. I, I It's definitely an ambition and something I'll definitely look into. I mean, this year I half considered doing the Morris Mullins Ultra, which I know is previously the, the qualifying for some of the longer distance internationals. Um, it just fell at a bad time. Um, with, between the other two ultras, so I decided not to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in, and ultimately, I mean, years ago, outside of, of running, my, a big love of mine has been um, outdoor adventure sports. I grew up with, my father was an outdoor pursuits instructor, so we would have spent a lot of our time as kids outdoors. And so a big part of my pastime today is rock climbing and mountaineering and ice climbing. I spend all my spare time when I'm not training or running doing them. Uh, and so years ago, I actually cycled the, the UTMB course, the Tour du Mont Blanc, um, on a mountain bike solo in my, in my early 20s. And wow. so, for, so for as long as I can remember, the UTMB has been right up there on my radar. I mean, I don't know whether I would be able, whether, you know, as I said, I'm very much untested over these, these ultras. I have a lot to learn and a lot to find out. Um, but certainly, I'd have ambitions down the line. Before I die, I'll try and run the ultra uh, to the Tour de Mont Blanc, you know. Do, do. And there's a great um, ultra running community in Ireland, Joe, as well. A lot of the Inver guys, like Gavin Byrne, for example, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. I mean, absolutely reach out to them, and I'm sure they'd they'd love to give you a few pointers in the right direction. But Joe, what I wanted to ask next was that we, we've spoken a couple of times now about your durability over a 10, 15 year period making track finals and um, more or less staying healthy over that time period when i was looking at that 800 meter race yesterday in 2006 as far as i'm aware there's only maybe three or four out of that 10 that day that started who are still running and myself yourself i think owen everard maybe might be still yeah he is indeed well. yeah yeah i think niall too he may be on and off maybe I don't um, know about Niall. The person that won that day was Thomas Chamney. David Campbell was second. A lot of the guys aren't running anymore. So maybe 30 to 40% of the track finalists that day aren't maybe involved in the sport now. Um, but you've managed to keep it going for so long. And Joe, what I was going to ask you was, how have you managed to do that? I mean, what do you think are the keys to your success? And something that we can share maybe that listeners can apply to their own training 
to help ensure that they stay healthy and fit. And that what I often say in the podcast is that, you know, I really believe that we can have 20, 30 year running careers and not just over a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it's definitely that you have to have the graph for, for the sport, you know. I mean, running has been the number one love of my life for as long as I can remember. And as I said, it's given me more things in my life than, than I could ever have imagined. And so that, that that's something that I could testify for myself and also for, for someone like Owen Everard, who's a good friend of mine. You know, we both have an indomitable love of racing and of training. And so, so having that passion for it essential and that keeps you motivated um, right the way through you know it's it's a sport of of no secrets as I'm sure you're w- well aware and most of the listeners are you know there are no shortcuts in this it's about diligence it's about getting out day after day about putting in the time when the weather's bad when you're tired and all these factors and and, and trying to 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 you know be consistently involved um, right the way through as far as longevity from a, from an injury perspective, I think one of the things, of course, I benefited from is that I've always been interested in sports science. Um, and I've also, I think, been a little bit smarter than other people with regards to, to knowing when to back off, you know. Um, you know if one thing that I can say for certain is one of the areas that I would look into a lot is that really we don't know exactly what the principal causes are of most injuries that people experience. And there are very rarely one single cause of, of these injuries. They're what we call multifactorial anomalies. They're very complex um, uh, to understand and complex to diagnose and to to, to do to understand to, to treat. So so the key is to to start to learn about your own body. You know, treat this as a case study where n equals one, and you start to over time fully understand how much is too much for you, when to push it and when not to push it, when to ease back on the training. Also, a big part of that is knowing at what part of the year when you should be going full tilt mentally. You know, what, at what point should you be putting in that full effort and dedicating everything you do towards this, and what part of the year should you actively switch off and just go through the motions. So I think that psychological approach to long-term training is really important you know and you typically see for example I was talking to a couple of younger athletes last week they come off of a track season where they'd been slightly disappointed and they said right from this week on I'm going to do everything right and then next year when it gets to this point I'm going to be in the best shape of my life and I said well actually you should probably just you know just chill now for a few months because if you go 100 miles an hour now into this and give it everything you've got and all of your energy then by Christmas, you're going to be burnt out. And that, that burnout may manifest as a physical injury, but it could more likely burn out uh, result in you just not really being up for the same amount of dedication. And then you'll start making mistakes, you'll start cutting corners, and things will typically drop. So, so again, that's that psychological component of knowing when to engage, when to switch on and focus on your training, and when just to go through the motions, I think is really important. And fr- from, a, from an injury-specific perspective, I think the big thing that I've learned, uh, and I learned this long ago, which I think is a big part of, of having a relatively injury-free career is knowing when to take a day off. You know, we, we, we tend to fall into these very prescriptive um, training blocks where we must do this on a Saturday. We must do a session on a Tuesday, Thursday. We must do a long run on a, on a Sunday. And, and if you deviate from this normal training, you're considered weak or you start, you know, getting judged by other people or, or even think that you are. Most of the time you're not, of course. And so actually having the flexibility or the, the independence to be able to say, you know, well, actually today I'm not feeling it and I'm going to take a day off I'm, I'm tired I'm sore uh, and and those flexibilities that you make in your training are really critical factors I mean only actually what day is today Friday yesterday Thursday morning I was supposed to do a, a long tempo session with the DTC crowd I woke up my legs were sore I hadn't slept that well I knew that the ultra in two weeks being cancelled and I said you know what I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that tempo today and I went out for 35 minutes easy and then I'll definitely feel better from that tomorrow as a result so 
So I think just being intelligent, you know, there's, unfortunately, there are no quick fixes to injuries. There are no secrets to success that will keep you on the road bar being intelligent about the way that you approach your training. Yeah, yeah it's great advice, Joe. And I mean, it's something that it took me such a long time to learn. Um, for example, I remember for, for years and years, Joe, I used to think, well, I'll have a rest when I get injured <laughs> or I'll have a rest when I get sick. And in the meantime, I'll just keep on training. Um, and invariably, I did get injured, but I might I might have been injured then for two months or three months, which was just a disaster where maybe if I had have used a approach and try to be maybe try to peak on two two or three occasions maximum a year and actually be patient and be disciplined and take my week or take my two weeks off I, I would have had a I would have avoided half of the injuries I'm sure that that I got over over the last 15 years um, and I know even even now for example that only now am I learning that like you said take a day off if you have a bad sleep don't worry about a session don't just do a session because it's tuesday and tuesday is the typical day Absolutely. when you have when you have to do reps and even like something you mentioned at the start of the conversation i think you said that you you put on maybe seven kilos but that's not a disaster it's okay for the body not to be at a hundred percent capacity all year round and if you put on four or five kilos or seven kilos whatever it is once you start training and with a little bit of patience, you'll get back to race weight in time for when you need to be. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is a strategy known as weight cycling, which is actually really healthy for long term um, physiological function. You know, so what we shouldn't be trying to do is maintain a, a very strict race weight for 365 days of the year. I mean, seven for me was too much. So I was out of shape by a country mile. And that was by, that I had a six six week layoff with a calf tear and, and various other factors. So I certainly wouldn't suggest that much. Um, but as I said a, a minute ago, when we go into that phase in which it's that pre competition period and we should be course planning our entire season beforehand we should know when the key phases are and then from there we can start making them adjustments to getting ourselves in race shape so that we're only at the leanest point when we need to be and then outside of that we can carry that little bit extra and because it's really healthy and, and really important for normal body function to not be in that super lean state all year round yeah i can i can testify to that joe and um, i'll admit that probably between 2017 and the start of this year, um, shocking behavior really, but I used to weigh myself pretty much every morning. And because in, in mountain racing, when you're climbing, you know, naturally, a bit like the cyclists in the Tour de France, the, the best cyclists are, are the leanest and, and that have the, the less weight to carry uphill. And because my focus over the last couple of years have been trying to make Irish teams for, for mountain races, I used to try and maintain my race championship weight all year round. And, you know, I freely admit it, I did that for about two and a half, three years. And I got to the point in January and February this year, Joe, where I was just exhausted. I was looking yeah. at photographs of myself. I was looking at races that I was doing. Joe, I was still having good results back in January and February, but I had to go to the well in every single race. And I was getting to the finish line exhausted like i just ran a marathon but it might have just been maybe an 8k cross country race or a local 5k race here and now looking back it's because i try to maintain that championship race weight and remain in peak fitness 
consistently over a three year period. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Psychologically, you just can't maintain that level of effort for, for the entire year. It's got to be a very directed, specific period at which you engage with it and then you pull off. So it's so classic that we see people pull into that cycle of weighing themselves daily or judging themselves in the mirror. And we know that this leads to a myriad of, of issues down the line, you know, which is really negative. So, so body weight, you know, and all of the issues associated with it is a, is a, a slippery slope, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so just to change, change rhythm a little bit. Um, I mentioned in the intro, in the intro, Joe, that you're one of the country's leading academics in, in sport. And you mentioned in one of your articles there recently, and if I can just quote back one of the lines from your article about human performance. And um, you said, often I feel as though the more I learn, the less I actually understand about what some would consider the basics of human performance. And this is a sentiment mirrored by many of my colleagues. And Joe, I can totally get what you mean by that because in today's world where we're bombarded with so much information through social media, running websites, often basic, important, good information from our experienced coaches, um, they can get lost in all that noise. So I just wanted to ask you, from your academic experience, from your own real life training as well, what for you is the basics of human performance? To, to quote uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Liam Hennessy, you know, we say methods are many and principles are few, but methods always change and principles never do. And, and so it's a, it's a great reminder that we you're absolutely right. We get caught up in all of these details and we live in an era where everything is data driven and we got all this technology and all this inf information coming in, which may be misinformation and all these factors. But ultimately, we have to remember that that the basics of human adaptation are it's a stress response model. You know, we apply a stress to the body and then we have to allow a period of time for the body to adapt to them stressors and then we apply them again. And we do this in a consistent repetitive fashion again and again and again, going back to the idea of consistency of training. And you will inevitably see these slow results over time. And too often now people are trying to to you know, take shortcuts for these basic human adaptations by thinking that if they buy a new pair of shoes, that it's going to make them a bit quicker, or if they wear this new pair of tights, or these add this new technology into their repertoire of training, that suddenly it's going to improve what they do. But unfortunately, it comes back. The most basic principle of training is that you apply a stress to the body, you allow a period of recovery, and then you you apply that stress again, and then eventually your body becomes resilient, it adapts itself, and it becomes um, much better at that. Now there is, of course, a genetic component of that, which is some people will respond faster and slower. Some people may not respond to certain types of training. Um, and so another good um, quote that I use all the time is that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And so, you know, how many times you hear that guy who says, you know, I've been training for a marathon for, for five years and, and I really want to break four minutes and I've, I'm try training every day. I'm doing everything I can and I just can't seem to do it. And you say and you ask them what they're doing. It turns out that they're going for an easy run every day and they think that just by running that they're going to get quicker. Um, and so, again, if it's not working, then if there's an extended period of doing the same thing with minimal change in your results. Well, then it's time to review what you're doing, you know. And so in that case, you need to run quicker. You need to add in some intervals or whatever it may be. So. 
So the principles of training are very straightforward. We have to apply specific stressors that are relevant to the, the discipline that we're, we're training for. So if it's something like an ultra, well, there needs to be a long run um, on some trail specific surfaces, um, you know, regularly in that training block. And, th and for some people that could be every week if you have the tolerance for it. Some, some people it could be only be every month, you know. Um, what I was doing in my training, for example, was I was, I was kind of periodizing my Sunday long run. So I would start with a two hours and the next week would be three and then I go four and then um, I might go up to five. So twice I went up to a five hour run and then I'd go right back the following week back down to two and I'd start building back up again. So I yeah. wouldn't be trying to back to back these big long runs like that because again, understand this principle of adaptation. If I'm going to have a high stress on the body and this would change depending on other stresses that are coming with like workload or whatever it may be. Um, well, then I'd need to make sure I allow time to adapt to them, you know. Um, and so that that going back to my earlier point of being flexible in your training is so important here because if you're stuck to that rigid training regimen and you're not recovering between these sessions well then you need to change what you're doing you know just doing the same thing again and hoping that suddenly your body will be able to tolerate it is just madness yeah patience and hard work combined in their right way joe by the sounds of it absolutely and unfortunately you know people constantly ask when and what the secrets to this and there is no secrets as you well know and in this sport yeah. you know it's it's about yeah. consistency yeah, definitely. Um, Joe, a final topic just to touch on today. You've done a lot of work and research regarding minimalist footwear. Um, I have to admit that I love my own Vivo barefoot shoes that I have, um, but I would only wear them day to day around the house, walking around town or whatever, but I would never try them for training or racing. Um, I did try them a couple of years ago when I was working with Rene Borg and we were coming back from an injury and Rene just said, oh, give these a shot, see what you think. But I just found the difference between minimalist shoes and then just your standard running shoes. For me, it was just too extreme. And I probably didn't have the patience to put in the time to give the body a chance to adapt to minimalist shoes for racing and training in. Joe, what were, what were your own conclusions um, from the work and the research you did regarding minimalist shoes? Yeah, okay, so we probably have to step back a bit here and, and look at the bigger picture to put it into context because, you know, a lot of people when, they, when they, they saw my work, they thought that I was out really to try and compare footwear against one another. But what I was trying to answer was an important question, which is, is it safe and feasible for people today as modern developed Westerners to take off these cushioned and protective shoes um, and then run in shoes that, that do not have anywhere near the same degree of, of you know, so-called technology and in inverted commas, so protective technologies like cushioning and elevation and pronation control and all these other factors because of course there was a big movement in in maybe 10 15 years ago where people started to push out a lot of research that said that barefoot running was far better for you and indeed there, there is certainly evidence and i would my own evidence would also push in this direction that running without shoes on or running in ultra minimal shoes does have benefits when it comes to a reduction in potential injury factors and also an improvement in running economy and eventually an improvement in running performance but the big issue here, and this is where, you know, really we've seen this whole thing move from what should have been a very positive scientific movement, which is we've, you know, people going back to doing the basics right, to what was known as a fad, because everyone suddenly realized, oh, look, barefoot and minimalist shoes is very good for you. Um, and everyone tried to do it. And of course, now we have this issue where today we live in an environment where we're not physically robust enough to tolerate large changes like something taking off our shoes. You know, nine, 90% of our waking life is spent in protective structures structured shoes and this has 
very strong implications for the way in which our feet develop and the uh, way in which we, we interact with the ground and our gait, both walking and running, and all of these other factors. So when you take a, this you know, physically weak and, and lack of um, robustness type of population in developed Western world, and then suddenly ask them all to take their shoes off, it's inevitable that this leads to a host of running injuries. Um, and that's indeed what happened. And we saw, you know, a massive spike in what we call transition related injuries. And as you said yourself, Owen, you know, you tried taking them off for a while. You found it was not comfortable. It was really difficult to make the change. You probably had a lot of lower leg soreness and all these other factors that came with it. Yeah. And so and so my research also pointed this out. You know, I often get a, a name this guy who was trying to push barefoot running, but nothing could have been further from the truth. My, a lot of my research clearly identified, look, if you take off your shoes during this transition period, there is a substantial increased risk of injury. So, so I eventually kind of came to this point where if I was to, to give people advice on shoes, it would be the following. The first is to vary your shoes as much as possible. Um, and that sounds kind of contradictory to what you might expect. So people like to think that there is a certain shoe that works for them and they should stick to that. And indeed, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So if you haven't got any injuries and you're totally pain-free and everything is totally fine, then don't change anything because the, the purpose here is of running. It's not about what you're wearing on your feet. But unfortunately, the injury statistics of today would suggest that upwards of 60 to 80% of runners every year are getting injured, which means that it's not okay most of the time. And so varying your footwear can be one of the ways that we can try to manipulate the stressors on the lower legs and reduce chronic overuse injuries because we know that chronic overuse has come from repetitive stresses in exactly the same location by running in the same way on the same surfaces. So variability is actually really important. And that variability can come from doing some of your running in minimal shoes, doing some in structured shoes, whatever you're comfortable with, doing some of your training off-road and on the trail and some on the road, some on the grass, whatever it may be. As much variability that we can program into this, um, this training and these decisions we make are definitely beneficial for injury. But second thing that I is that everybody should do some training in ultra minimal or minimal shoes. But people will hear that and say, well, you know, surely he doesn't mean that everyone takes their shoes off all the time. And that's absolutely true. What I would advocate is that a very small proportion of everybody's training should be done without shoes on. And that could be as little as 5% of your training a week, you know, one to two kilometers once you've built up to it. Because we know that the basic principles of adaptation in the feet work just the same as any other muscle in the body. And so, for example, we spend a lot of time as runners doing core stability work, or we do leg strength, or we do glute work, or whatever it may be. But the neglect element of the entire body is the human foot and that's the one that takes the most amount of stress and um, that's yeah. the one responsible with every contact that we make with the ground and so it's essential that we have some kind of training to make sure that this is the most robust ligament and joint and, and structure in the body and so a small amount of training every week I would really encourage that people do without their shoes on but with that big caveat that if you do too much of it you are going to get injured so it must be very smart you know I would say the first time you take your shoes off it should be a minute duration and then the next day it should be two and you build up to maybe only 10 minutes a week of your training without shoes on so you know people would, would look at me for example and say well this is a guy that's been trying to push minimal shoes which isn't true um but regardless that seems to be the name i have but actually you know 50% of my training is in a normal shoe and 50% is in a is in a lightweight minimalist kind of um, flexible um, racer and I do then particularly in the summer I'll do upwards of you know, maybe maybe a mile two miles a week without my shoes on but that's it I'm, I'm not spending all my time without my shoes on just trying to prove a prove a point because that's ultimately where this whole movement about shoes really went off the rails.
Yeah, no, it's great advice, Joe. And what I certainly enjoyed maybe over the last five or six years since I became aware of minimalist shoes is, as we were saying, on my day-to-day business, walking around at home, I have my Vivo barefoots on. And at least then my feet are getting that direct contact with the ground. They have room to breathe. They have room to expand as opposed to the typical maybe office type shoe that, that we wear, um, especially high heels, say, for the, for the girls, where they have that horrible pointy toe end, which means our toes are crushed inwards towards the top of the shoe, which I think is so harmful and damaging for our feet. Absolutely. So if, if people could take anything from the conversation maybe today is take on board what you're saying. And if you're a little bit afraid to go training in them, Maybe just try it walking around town, walking around the office, walking around at home. Get yourself a pair of Vivo Barefoots or whatever they might be. And maybe a final point, Joe, that I'd add is, and I was talking to Remy about this yesterday, give your kids a chance to try out the the wider-based barefoot-type shoes so that from an early age, their feet are learning to breathe and learning to expand. So from an early age, their little feet that are developing aren't getting squashed so early. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the kids of the future are the ones in which we can make positive changes with regard to shoes, you know. And I mean, there was even a time in schools where what you wore was your, the, the plimsolls, you know, them very small kind of minimalist flexible shoes. And now, of course, everyone has to wear a certain type of shoe in school. And it's, it's, it's not okay to not wear them. But, but kids should spend as much time as possible without their shoes on. Um, and it's, you know, for that normal functional foot development, it's essential. Yeah. Well, well, listen, Joe, it's been a wonderful 45 minutes or so talking to you. Hopefully we'll have you maybe again on soon because there's, there's lots and lots of things that we could touch on. Maybe just one last question, Joe, is that I know you're very interested in the carbon plate foot, foot, footwear as well. Can you see carbon plates ever making an introduction into trail running races? Um, I know myself, Joe, one day I tried on my vapor flies running over the hills around town. Now, not on the trails, but just running over typical streets that were quite hilly. And it was an absolute disaster. The, the carbon plates just didn't work running uphill or even downhill. For me, they only maybe work on the flat. Um, any, any opinion, Joe, on carbon plates ever making it to the hills? Jesus, a great question. I could actually talk about these shoes all day for sure. Um, so I, they would have to be a lower profile shoe if they were to make it, but I don't believe that you would have the, the consistent surface response to make them really worthwhile or beneficial. You know, one yeah. of the things I would really advocate for running in the hills on the trails is that we should be wearing a lower profile shoe because the higher that you raise the center of mass of the shoe off the ground, the more likely you're going to get what we call eversion forces. In other words, you're, you're going to be constantly going over on your ankle. Uh, and the problem with these shoes, one is that they're, they're quite soft and so they're not going to give you much um, feeling of traction on these various surfaces in the hills and secondly of course um, that they're quite high off the ground so so I imagine it would be a disaster right now so you know the the, the whole principle behind these shoes is that they essentially restitute energy off of a, a stiff surface um, and yeah. so that that surface contact the quality of that contact is essential so so I can't see them moving into the hills and indeed I hope they don't because I think trail runners and, and hill runners have a great um, opportunity to wear lo- lesser developed um, or, or less structured shoes and uh, it suits itself or lends itself far better to that environment. Okay well listen Joe thanks a million for that and as I said it's been a real pleasure today 
Good luck with your racing over the next two or three years or so from your magnificent range of 800 metres to 80k ultras. And uh, fingers crossed, Joe, one day we'll see you running maybe in an Irish vest um, in an ultra championship. Thanks, Owen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Big fan of the show and uh, you're doing great stuff. Thanks, Mojo. Talk to you soon. See you soon.